Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had the conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in the headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 96, with the title, Authenticity Unveiled. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Lee Gilbert. Lee is a marketing leader and a volunteer mentor and counsellor for adults with gender dysphoria. When I asked Lee to describe her superpower, she said, being an authentic leader who is comfortable with being vulnerable and using the happiness that comes from it. Hello, Lee. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. It's a real pleasure to be here. Likewise. And uh, where are we now? We're in, the, we're in Twixmas, aren't we? The bit between Christmas and New Year. 2023 and we were just chatting just now about uh, our family occasions and all the things we've done so lee authenticity unveiled what's all that i guess there's two parts to that authenticity is something that's become more important to me in the last few years and the unveiling is the part that took 40 years i guess is a way of looking at it so Winding back the clock, just to set the context here, I I am transgender. I am someone that has been through and experienced a lot in my life, but I didn't become authentically myself until 2020. Prior to that, I was operating what I would call the role of a lifetime, as Ronald Reagan once described it, as an acting role. I was one of the world's best actors. Um, I was acting a, a life that wasn't authentic, but a life that was very successful, productive, and from the outside to other people looked amazing, but inside to me was 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 very uncomfortable and and challenging. You know, winding back the clock, I knew I was trans in 1985 which was when I was about seven, coming on eight that year. In 1995, when I finished education, um, in March of that year, I attempted my own life because that was a point in my life that was possibly the lowest. I've never thought about it or had ideation about that since, but it was it was a moment that was the deepest and darkest time as I began adulthood at that point. And it was, it was a time when it, when it happened, but it thankfully failed, I guess I decided to do what society expected me to do for the next 30 years, almost. And I'll, and I'll tell you the difference between the 30 and the 35, the, the, the difference in the time there in, in a moment. But the intervening period 
you know, I, I was reasonably successful. I, I decided for my own mental health reasons not to go to university. I, I could have gone, but I chose not to because I thought the isolation of university, considering what had just happened, might have been one of the worst things I could do for myself. So I decided to go and get a job and go for the picket fence and the 2.4 kids and everything else that, that the world kind of dictates that you're you're supposed to do. Dictates is a bit of a strange word to use, but I, I guess that's how it feels. And that lack of belonging created that inauthentic feeling. But at the same time, I'm quite a driven, passionate, entrepreneurial individual. So I kind of wandered through five years of, of life in my first roles and then set up my own business in the turn of the millennium. And then basically made myself unemployable for 20 years during which time I founded a couple of startups and founded you know, a marketing agency and did some speaking became very successful to the outside world with supercars and houses and multiple holidays and family and everything else it looked that I was being authentic but actually it was the biggest fraud in human history, <laughs> certainly in my history. Um, uh, but in 2016, I kind of set myself free a bit. That freedom exercised itself fully in 2020. I can explain the gap between 2016 and 2020 a bit more later. And then since 2020, I've been living authentically. And now I've kind of found a sense of belonging which means I found happiness and I've not only am I living authentically, it's dramatically improved the way I, I act, who I am. And I enjoy being a leader in an authentic way. So I guess that's the unveiling part, Joe, and that's the journey to authenticity. Wow. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing and trusting me with some of that information it, it can't be easy to talk about that i appreciate that so you were seven or eight in 1985 a little bit younger than me i won't say how well quite a lot younger than me 10 or so years 10 15 years 1985 was still the dark ages in human evolution <laughs> when we talk about internet we talk about we're probably right in the middle of section 28, I guess, close to section 28, 1988, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, I was at school when that happened. So, yeah, it, it's you, you were growing up in a time where being queer was AIDS, AIDS was around, all that kind of stuff. It was being demonised. Yeah, we look at those, look back at that, that time in history. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a great time to be a young, questioning person. There's no li information, no literature, no nothing else around. So when you say you were you were trying to figure yourself out in your head, but what reference point did you have to try and use to analyse that? Nothing. And I guess that was the problem, Joe. <laughs> so from 1985 to 1995, when I attempted my own life, you're quite right, that was the vacuum of information that we lived in. And that was the backdrop to it. And... I had no role models around me, which is why today I'm very, very driven to be open about my journey so I can 
offer myself as a role model to others. And I, as you said in, in the beginning, I do volunteer to mentor young adults that are going through that journey. Myself, I'm very open on LinkedIn about my journey and some of the challenges amongst everything else professionally. But during that period, there was no information. There was no internet. And and I think the only things that happened, and this sounds silly, but the only things that would happen is occasionally you would get in the news of the world or the Sunday people or, or something, there would be a story every now and again, a few times a year, you would get sex swap cop or you know, some army major that has been brave enough to change their gender and sold their story to the news of the world. And, and you know, you'd get like uh, Julia Grant, who did the BBC TV series in the 80s, which was, they were little diamonds in the rough that happened, but the sex swap, stop, sex swap cop stories were so derogatory. But actually, I was compelled to read them because it was a point of identity. It was like, actually, I get that. But it, you're looking back at now, the way that the newspapers dealt with that and the headlines they put on it were, quite frankly, shocking. But that was the only information we had. And, you know, I, we didn't have any internet. And there was very little in libraries because of government legislation, as you've alluded to, and there was no schooling. And, and I think the lack of information created the darkness and some of the mental health challenges I had at that time and and put me in that difficult place in 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 95 which music actually got me out of it was music that that got me out of the darkness but that that vacuum of information is 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 so key of course today you flip that coin and there's arguably so much information and so much of that information is still riddled with that media kind of poisoned language in places, but some of it is 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 genuinely powerful and really great information. But it's you've gone from nothing to too much, arguably, and there's a lot of confusion. So young people today, the ones that I work with at least, have the opposite problem to the one I did, which is that they're bombarded with so much that they're not quite sure which way to turn. Yeah, so many more options these days. You know, in the old days, it was you were transvestite or transsexual or trans transvestite is pre cross dressing. Cross dressing is kind of a contemporary term. So transvestite was the term used in those days, and you were a TV or a TS. That was kind of the language. Now we've got a whole load of different ways to describe gender in terms of fluidity, demi, transmasculine, transfeminine, non-binary, fluid. All, all these kind of different terms exist. And the one that I think is most important that has now evolved is questioning. You're allowed to question. You're allowed to say, I don't know. But society wants you to know. And that, I think sometimes you get pushed into making a decision and not allowed to just figure yourself out for a bit. I think that's right. I mean, we, we kind of grow up in a in a binary world in so many senses. You know, there's left, there's right, there's up, there's down, there's, there's male, there's female, there's black, there's white. And, and I think the binary makes people feel safe in their own thoughts. 
and being in that dare i say the term 50 shades of gray spectrum in the middle makes some people feel uncomfortable and they find that questions themselves let alone those that are questioning and that's where some of the the the, the, the discomfort and some of the challenges that others that others have with things i think happen but we, we do live in a binary world and uh, you know there are good things that come from from binary factors it, it it kind of makes things easy to understand but when things are less binary that's when complexity occurs I mean, I sort of did my evolution alone, and I, and I, I, I'm not saying it was is easier or harder being alone or being with people, but I, I had no pressure from people around me to be to operate at a different pace. I sometimes wonder if we have created a society where, because of the uh, you know, the cues for the gender identity clinics, and now six to eight years, I think, depending on where you go. If you're a young person trying to get on the pathway, I think the time scales are even longer. You, you might have to become an adult before you get seen at, at the youth services now because they've all been disrupted. There's this kind of need to get on the conveyor belt, whereas when I was trying to figure myself out, because I was in isolation, yes, I didn't understand, I couldn't figure myself out, but I didn't have a whole peer group of pressure or comparison dr- drawing me into something that I wasn't sure about. I... I People were surprised when I, I transitioned. So I went, I went from sort of naught to sixty in in a, in a millisecond. It was like, ah, ah, how did that happen? Because I, I I kind of dotted all my eyes and crossed my t's, and then went right. Now I know. I think today people are using that using their quite rightly questioning in public and out. They come out and question rather than keep it as a secret in question. I think that's quite right, and I and I it's positive that that happens. I talk about vulnerability being almost a superpower or something that I'm I see as part of an authenticity I I, I, you know from my period up until what was November 2015 when I first came out to my wife we then had a period of five years where no one else knew, but during that five years, myself most particularly, but also my wife, and you know, building those foundations of a strong relationship and everything else that goes with, with, with kind of having that cornerstone there, at least in my experience for me, and it was important. It allowed me to do those things somewhat in private for five years, but with someone I could talk to. But up until that point, it was without it. But prior to that time, doing it in isolation created shame. And shame is a very, very negative emotion. But one I've learned to turn into a powerful emotion now, because shame is the backbone of vulnerability. So yes, I feel shame about some of my past, and I do. I've learned to to be okay with that and to turn that around and to say actually by being vulnerable that allows me to to engage people at a deeper level 
and I'm quite glad that I had that time. You know, I'm quite glad that I had that adjustment. You know, there was this period of deep shame, and then a period of five years of kind of figuring stuff out and a little bit of that with my wife at the time. But then literally in, in, during lockdown, let's not forget 2020 was during lockdown, when the world slowed down a bit and I was allowed some mental capacity to think about things, it was like, okay, now's right. Now is right. You know, lockdown was pants but actually the one of the positive things for lock for lockdown for me was it gave me that bandwidth to make the decision that i was going to come out to the world in in summer of 2020 professionally i didn't do it till the new year but the family was first obviously and had we not have had lockdown and, and that kind of pause of life I'm not sure it would have happened that at that moment in time. So it's quite an interesting perspective of deep shame, transition of kind of getting my mind together and, and dealing with some of that, and then having the pause of lockdown, and that to be the unveiling, as you described at the start, the the kind of, and it happened at 0 to 60 for me too from that point onwards. I mean, to the outside world at least, but actually it was a 40 plus year journey prior to that. But to the outside world, everyone was like, what the heck? But that's how it happens, I guess. Your, your story is not too dissimilar to my story. I first started talking to my wife 2012 and then didn't really announce it to the world until mid-2016. So it's a, a four-year private secret to try and figure that stuff out and try and keep our relationship together and prepare for telling the family. Although even at that journey, I wasn't sure where I was going with it. It was no, there was no destination. It was just kind of, let's just figure this stuff out. You, you talked about shame. In order to have shame, I think you, you need to be almost given the situation. Where do you think your shame came from? It's, you don't self-generate it out of nothing, do you? No, I think you know, shame shame's quite a complex thing. On one level, it comes from a societal norm perspective that I was doing, or I was, I am, not what society expects. So that creates shame on a, on a, on a, on a sort of surface level. But on a deeper level, there's the shame of having a relationship and a marriage at that time when I told my wife coming on for about 13, 14 years, it's, it's now over 20. But it's the shame of, of the sense of, did I do the right thing during that time? You know, I'm quite a morally, ethically driven person. So I think some of the shame comes from that. And then the other part of shame, I think, comes from what I gave up, which is a strange thing to say, but you kind of, I, I got to a situation where I, I built successful, a couple of successful startups, a successful agency, a successful speaking career. You know, I had a driveway full of supercars, two dressage horses. I was, to the outside world, very, very successful. So shame comes a little bit in kind of the public 
exposure at that time and that's quite it's quite a journey to, to do that in, in in public you know had i not i kind of created this persona which was my protection but then the persona became a big driver for change because leave, losing or leaving that which was the absolutely the right thing to do because it was all a complete and utter front but i built it up and then in order to be me and to be authentic i had to close the door on all of that and almost start again which is what i did really it must have been a huge i'm used the word fear fear of that unknown how the world was going to react how people around you would react and that fear i'm just using my own experience held me back for many years how did you overcome that fear and how big was that fear for you it was huge you know there's two there's two parts to it i mean you spoke about coming out to your wife first and then having a period where there's the adjustment and then there was the the, the pit where you come out to the remainder of the world i mean let's face it you kind of come out every day in some expenses but that, that's a separate conversation you know the, the the fear of i call it jumping off a cliff moment that's how i've described it in the past so i had a huge jump off the cliff moment i was i was at a hotel in belgium on the corner of the formula one racing circuit at spa franc or i'd been doing a two-day track day thing with some cars which i was ridiculously into at that time and in the middle night it, it was it was the night of the bataclan paris brussels terrorist attack actually to anchor it in history and at that particular time although i didn't know it until the following morning but that about the terrorist attack that is overnight from about 11 p.m until 4 a.m i was coming out to my wife from a hotel room in belgium while she was back home um so i jumped off a metaphorical cliff remotely if you like and then came back home to my wife and family so that was the first jump off a cliff moment the next jump off a cliff moment is when you come out to your family and then the bigger jump off a cliff moment was i'm now going to throw my professional career away in the following year and kind of stand on another grenade and see what that brings about so yeah there's the three metaphorical cliffs i guess wife family professional um, and they're all big leaps which is the hardest that's a great question joe the hardest was my wife because i knew i had to do that i've been trying to do it for nine months prior to that the family one lockdown really helped me get in a great place to do that was actually the easiest at that point the professional one almost felt like a rite of passage it just felt something that okay we're now here if we now need to do this and I, I connected it at that time with a with a need to find a belonging. I, I kind of had twenty years of making myself completely unemployable and doing lots of things, and but I realised that actually I wanted a home then, 
and in order to find you know it wasn't about being a solopreneur or entrepreneur an agency owner a speaker you know it wasn't about being a startup founder i didn't want that anymore i was probably too old to a point but what i wanted was a sense of belonging i wanted to feel that i belonged in so many ways you know authentically from a gender perspective authentically from a human perspective and part of that belonging was the need to find something that aligned with my purpose so i came out and then thought i'll go and get a job so it was there's yeah, a huge shift really i did the opposite actually i came out and started my own business because I, at the time in 2016 2017 i just i couldn't find a job that I wanted again you talk about being unemployable I, I run a business for the last 30 or 35 years there's no there's no where, where do you apply for a role where your former title was business owner or running a business or there was just, there was no easy easy employable route at the time but when I when I told the world it, it was a kind of drunken moment a bit of Facebook a bit of Prosecco a bit of truth serum sort of thing what I didn't realize at the time was that the biggest impact of that wasn't on me, but it was on my family. Because what had been a private secret, a private thing we'd, we we had between us, suddenly I realized what my wife and my children were now publicly associated to a trans person. Before it was kind of a private thing. So suddenly my wife had her own shame her own stigma her own feeling my daughter's my dad's trans had to tell her friends sort of thing so th that was the thing I, I was really surprised at i hadn't i hadn't it occurred to me one of the slightest i had this real wake-up moment that actually it wasn't about me at this point now it was all about everybody else around me and the trauma they were going through i think that's right i think you know during the during the five years that i was having you know, private coming out, if you like, with my wife, it was it was easy there. My kids were very aware of what was going on without being told. It was it was in front of their eyes. So they you know, there was an unsaid thing for a number of years. Eventually we had conversations, but in the beginning it was an unsaid thing and, and then it became quite an easy piece. But at the point of professionally coming out, you know, putting a post out on LinkedIn and you know, telling the world in, in subsequent conversations and to clients and, and ex-clients and, and everything else. I mean, that's a story in itself where the ex-clients then started to come to me and say, oh, I've got a trans daughter and I've got a, you know, a trans son. Can you help? And that's where my volunteering actually started. For my clients, when I ran my own business, they were bringing their own children to me, which was which was an interesting switch. But you're quite right. You know, my wife, in particular, had to go through her, her own journey at that point. And it took her probably a couple of years to feel completely okay and completely comfortable in a public situation. In so much a way that now she's quite proud of that and very, very openly identifies in that way. But we are 
three, four, three and a half years down the track from that point. But in the beginning, it was it was very difficult. Yeah, we did it quite publicly. We we did a Channel Four documentary, so it was hard for us to hide a lot of this. It was yeah. it was being broadcast on uh, Channel Four on a Monday night in uh, 2019. So that kind of created this crunch point where we had to start telling people because in a few weeks' time it was all going to be everywhere. So because Marie was very nervous about telling her her parents, I told my mum several years before, and that was quite emotional, but very supportive. But yeah. I was quite surprised by my friends. And I, I say, I say, which sounds quite crazy, is that your friends are your friends because they're your friends. The people who aren't your friends no, are no longer your friends, basically. So I was surprised by the friends and their reaction. There was kind of a, it was almost like a little jolt in the space-time continuum and it sort of, everyone sort of shook themselves down and went, okay, fine, okay, whatever. Because I was... If anyone who doesn't know the history, I was national president of a man's club called the Round Table. So a lot of my friends were through the Round Table movement, and, and uh, there was a, obviously being a, a male-only club and being national president of it kind of did disrupt a lot of people's thinking. So much so that, and, and you talk, we talked about belonging. I've lost the sense of belonging I had with that club because it's not for me, and. I go to some meetings because I'm invited as a past national president, past club chairman, all these kind of things. And I go there and I think, this isn't where I want to be. This feels uncomfortable. So I've lost the belonging I had. And it's not them. It's not at all them. It's all about me and what I want and what I need. So I've lost a sense of belonging. And I've drifted away considerably from old friends. And it's not them. It, it is purely me, my needs and what, what fulfills me now. Did you have something similar? Because, you know, you're supercar racing, you were track days, successful, probably spending far too much in bars that you shouldn't be in, having a good time. Spending far too much in bars that I shouldn't have been in was 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 true. I mean, I, I mean, I, to all intents and purposes, I was an alcoholic during that period, a fun, high-functioning alcoholic, I have to say. But, you know, that was just a ridiculous thing. And I, I, I use the word ridiculous about some of the car stuff earlier on i mean it was all denial and masking and everything else it was just all you look back at it now and it, it brings me shame thinking about it actually because it was i was denying myself through that denial i was denying myself true authenticity but there are things i go back to now it's like being in environments that's quite laddish now or in situations that are quite atypical going back to a binary situation for a moment male environments whether it's around cars or around football or around heavy drinking or laddish behavior literally it's a fish out of water and because i've found my inner self and that sense of belonging I just don't want to be there. So that that shift of that you know, journey to authenticity, if you like, it's, it was a long one. But when I found it, it it definitely has put me in places, and or it, it makes me realise now that. You know, there are lots of things that I did that 
I clearly didn't really want to be in or be around or be part of or be you know involved with. But I was I was doing it again, going back to doing what I was supposed to do in the 2.4 kids and societal norms and everything else. You mentioned that the lockdown gave you the mental capacity to sort of explore the space in your head to explore things. And one of the things I found throughout my life, you know, I look at it from similar sort of age, six, seven, eight years old, there was always this societal, you, know, you call it societal expectation. You know, you, you, you're in school, you've got to get your exams, you've got to get your exams, you've got to go to college, you've got to go to university, whatever. I, and I ended up joining the RAF from school. But there was always this kind of trajectory that you get on this life life expectation. And if you didn't, then you were one of those weird people that didn't succeed or you were rogue. So I think I, I did that and I followed the must get married, must have kids, must have the picket fence, must have the four bedroom detached and have the biggest car I could afford and spend far too much and be very laddish. And I think what happened to me was I got to my mid-40s and I just I hit the stop button. It was kind of like, hang on a minute, my IT career is, is this not something I really wanted to do. I don't know how I got into IT. I've, I'm good at it, but I don't enjoy it. It's not, it's not something that buzzes me. And, of course, that time there around my mid-40s, you start to question your life anyway, don't you? And I think it, it would have been cheaper to get Harley Davidson and cruise across America in leathers than it would be to change the transition and give up everything I gave up. But I think I did, I did a reboot. I, I literally rebooted everything, my career, my identity. The only thing that is actually the same now are my wife and family. Yeah. 99% of everything else is different. Yeah. We don't live in the same house. We don't have the same cars. We don't have the same circle of friends. Everything is rebooted. And it's it's. And I think you talk about unveiling the authenticity. It's allowed me to rebuild a life that that resonates rather than the life that was making me resonate, if you like. I was, my life is now humming to my inner beat rather than me resonating to the outer beat, if you like. I think that's probably the difference. It's now my life that I've got control over. And I completely relate to it. I love the analogy of the reboot. Fundamentally, that's what's happened. I mean, we still do live in the same house, ironically. Um, but everything else is rebooted. And I went through that whole thing of pressing the stop button as you described it. And, you know, everything happened at that moment. So, to, to, and it happened quick, you know, within a really short period of time. So it, it's almost like I spent the time prior to that preparing to to somehow bring it together or, or creating some sort of mental space to allow that to happen. And I think I, I, I said it earlier on lockdown gave me the pause to, to first of all, find the, the brain space to act, but it also allowed me then, because of course lockdown didn't just happen for a couple of months. It happened after I came out to my family and continued for some time after that. It allowed brain space for others to adjust. So they weren't running their lives at 90 miles an hour. So those that came along and are still on the journey with us kind of had the opportunity to explore and, and, and join in and see the world for what it was for us and experience that and go, actually, this is kind of, the same but different and and those friends and 
family are, as you say, still with us, but the, the reboot around us happened in, in on so many levels and so fast. Quite empowering, though, isn't it? Um, hugely empowering. I, I can't tell you now how... I, I find it difficult to describe at the moment. I've been through this period over the last month or two trying to to find words to describe it simply, and I'm struggling, if I'm honest. But the empowerment from it connected with some of my drive and passion and enthusiasm and entrepreneurial spirit that's always been there in my life, but connecting the empowerment with that stuff has is now I'm now the best me I can be. Whereas before it wasn't all of me. And and I I struggle to put that in, in as few words as possible, but that's kind of how it is. That's beautiful. That's that's really beautiful. It, it so resonates. It's a connection of all the dots, isn't it? Everything clicks into place. And I always talk about this, the Japanese saying ikigai, which is when you have all those four elements click into place. And the last one is what resonates that, that you find that passion and then everything clicks into place. And I felt I was always lacking that bit. I was good at something. I earned money at it. The world needed it, but I never found me in there. And I think once you line it all up, suddenly that's where the magic happens. And I, th- I mean, my favorite poem is um, Marianne Williamson one. It talks about that it's our darkness that's our yeah, our darkness and our fears, which is our greatest. The thing we're most it's our light that we're most afraid of. It's not our darkness. And that's true, actually. I focus for so long on kind of all the things that I kind of captured in that darkness. But actually, you can once you connect those dots, everything becomes so much more enthralling happy yes and and that in itself is quite a powerful emotion and you mix that in with other things i literally now feel capable of moving things that i never felt i could move or do or achieve or you know conversations even on a human level that i never thought i could do before it's so the bandwidth that I have from an emotional intelligence is far greater than it ever was. But the bandwidth I have on a, on a, on a, a kind of in, in, on an IQ perspective is, has somehow become more powerful as a result because the, the, the emotion in, in there is, is allowing me to explore things that I didn't see before. It's it's really hard to to capture, but it's amazing. Indeed, yes, yeah. beautiful again. Uh, so here we are, the end of twenty twenty three, at the end of a a pretty tough year for trans, non binary, gender diverse individuals, from a media perspective, from the government perspective, from a global perspective. It's getting worse, isn't it? It, and I think it will in 2024, if I'm honest, because there's inevitably going to be an election in the UK. 
obviously the the US election engine is warming up. So I think it will increase. It's an interesting one, Joe, because I I've always to some degree I've stayed away from being actively involved in conversations about the the media spin and hatred and but also the media lens broadly on trans issues and, and like predominantly because I just didn't want to get associated with being part of the conversation and I've always had the view that you know I I can make a difference in in individual ways which is why I do my volunteering and my mentoring work with 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 young adults because I can make a difference there and next year I think it's going to be more challenging you know and, and it's never been something I've wanted to stray into I've never really wanted to be the kind of noisy vocal person although I've got the opinions I must say I do have the opinions but I've, I've always wanted to be from a you know I guess it's my marketing head I put it on and think you know from a personal brand perspective do I want to be part of that conversation and you know privately I am very much part of that conversation but publicly I very rarely am and there are some things that annoy me I mean the things that do annoy me and I, I will talk about here is you know, the lack of common sense now I read something the other day may have even been yesterday about how trans chess players are now being treated in the same way as trans athletes and, and and i look at that and i think okay so we can have a conversation about the trans athlete thing and there's you know that can go whichever way you want that to go but then you start thinking about trans chess players and you the world's gone mad because you know there are sports and, and i don't i don't know why chess is not one of them but there are definitely sports and you know equestrian sports is one of them where it does you know gender doesn't create a different class of of competition you know, that you compete together and there is no advantage or disadvantage from from that in, in whatever way you choose to look at it but how the you know how can someone that is trans have an advantage over another chess player of any other gender identity in a sport that's got no physical attributes to it yet it becomes a story in the media just because it continues this whole thing about trans in sport i, I it, it's kind of like okay let's make it make sense please let's just find something find a place that that delivers some common sense into the conversation and the chess one was just like oh please there's been a couple like that hasn't it and it, it was chess and something else recently where yeah. it just doesn't make sense at all but then you look at ice hockey and ice hockey has come up with some very pragmatic very very simple rules where your trans transiness or your trans history isn't deciding fact it's all based on risk and I'm all in favour of analysing risk for participants 
and also the risk of fairness because sport at elite level has to be have a perception of fairness because there's money involved there's betting there's competitions so you have to believe there's fairness but there's lots of inequity in sport anyway around sponsorship around money around privilege and one's gender identity is just part of that mix of fairness but we which we latch onto without latching onto the other inequities in in society you know, we, we you think that the the 1%, 2% of the population that are trans non-binary would be the majority. I mean, we're, we're subverting the entire society and destroying family values and the fabric ahead of all the other things. You know, we've, we've had politicians lying. We've had We've got countless wars going on around the world but yet trans people seem to be the ones that are the diversionary tactic at the moment aren't we yes and it, it it's it's a potato a hot potato that seems to get passed around a lot and it's something that i guess is part of the journey of acceptance you know in 10 years time probably look back and it'll just be part of history and 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 i'm sure that will be the case because you look at historical kind of periods of acceptance and that's kind of how it's always played out. There's always been this time where it's been tumultuous and difficult and challenging and kind of buoyant mm. and then it calms down. Then there's a piece of revision, revisionism that happens and then people look back and it's all, you know, the norm kind of proceeds. And I do think in 10 years' time that is where we will be at, but we're in the middle of it right now. And, you know, the the bit that makes me sad actually is that it becomes the most important topic of the day for some people some media outlets some newspapers some tv stations and such like yeah actually there are far more important things going on in the world you know there are far more important challenges in the economy and in healthcare and in in education and, and in everything else. Yet this is a story that everyone keeps talking about. It's it's almost like you use the word distraction, and I think that's I think that's it. It's like if we keep it bubbling, then it means we don't have to have the tough conversations about the things that really matter, and the things that really matter are. The economy, education, healthcare, but actually, if we kick the stuff around about migrants and trans people, then we can keep the headlines there, and we don't have to have those tough conversations. Just bury it, bury, it, bury the real news under the the fake news, isn't it? And create these uh, political footballs. But as you say, I think twenty twenty four, we've got the US elections, where it would seem that Trump is now the favourite, apparently, allegedly. That's hoping. If you listen back to this episode in a year's time, that that wasn't the case, but that seems to be the trajectory at the moment. And the political football this this year for the UK is likely to be trans people are likely to be dead centre as as we I'm going to say we as we were in the Tory leadership competition last summer or the summer before, where it was a race to be the most transphobic got the, got the vote or something. It was, and I think we're going to end up in that same hot potato political football sphere again and everyone's going to be posturing on how to be the most transphobic or the most anti-trans they can be 
throw us under the bus as much as they can in order to create some sort of wedge issue in society. And I think and that's why I'm determined to be visible, because by being visible, you create, you, you challenge the myth that trans people are, are all of a certain type or, or they're all, I mean, obviously at the moment, every mention of trans is that they're somebody that's been held up in court for a physical assault on another female and that person's identified as as being trans as a way of getting out of, you know, you know whether that's true or not in their case, the media spin that. And it's always, it, it's like they've got this avatar of a trans person and every time that they, they mention it, you know, they've got to be a rapist. They've got to be a, a, a person that's, that's, that's been held upon some sort of charge in court or they've done something particularly wrong. But of course that's, kind of a smear thing so uh, my determination is to become visible and to to create a positive role model for others but to do it in a way that's not shouty and not always focused on trans issues but to do it in a way that's about here is someone leading a normal life wanting to make a difference and to be a role model role models are strange word, but be a visible person, let's call it that, that challenges that avatar that seems to drop itself into the media all the time. Yes, the uh, we can all close your eyes, think of a trans person. We all have this media-infused, rocky horror-type image in our heads that media keep playing on. And I think that's what, keeps, as you say, keeps getting dropped in if if not literally, figuratively or des- descriptively, is is the language that's being reinforced. And and you know, you're a marketing specialist, and you have these common themes of, of 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 threads you pull to get your message across. And that that's the the negative brand that trans people have. It is, and and I think they've definitely got this playbook around it. And, and who's driving that playbook is tough to find. But yeah. I, I, I still will continue throughout 2024 to have my own playbook, which is that I will not be drawn into debate or or anything about that subject. It annoys me massively, but the way that I'm choosing to make a difference is to to deal is to work with individuals and to be visible as a a normal human being. I concur. I definitely concur with that. It's I. I have a, a similar approach where my I, I want to do it through education, through engagement, through conversations, through being the best me I can be, and that's my motivation. I'm not looking to. I'd like nothing more than to be Joe the EDI specialist, Joe the speaker who just happens to be trans rather than, rather than trans being my raison d'etre, if you like. And that's, I think I've probably got another couple of years before I want to just hide in the background and just, just get on with life. And, and uh, yeah, there's, there's hope that, uh, as you say, in a couple of years' time, the pressure changes, the direction changes, there'll be something else, and society will move on. And much like being queer in the 70s and 80s was, it's it's becoming normalised. We, we start to 
not see being gay or being black because you know, it wasn't so long ago that being black was the same language as being used and that's my point about in 10 years time going that we'll have a period of revisionism and then it will be that period of acceptance and the examples you gave then or given then are ones where that's happened and we've kind of come through that and that's where we are and i believe in 10 years we'll, we'll be there with this but you know it, it, it's close to home obviously because and, and it was close to home for millions of others while those events were happening in the 70s and 80s and 90s i'm gonna leave it there i think that's been a fantastic conversation and i it's been really really fascinating talking to you and hearing your story and your you know, we talked about authenticity we talked about vulnerability and you've been both authentic and and vulnerable and i, I really appreciate your openness and candor around yourself your life your family which i know isn't easy because you're always taking a piece of yourself and giving it to somebody else. And it, 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 you've only got so many spoons and so many pieces of, of you you can give. And I, and I'm, I feel quite honoured that you've come here today and shared that. If people want to get in contact with you as a human being, where's the best place to, to track you down? The best place and the place I hang out is on LinkedIn. So you'll always find me on LinkedIn. And I'm on LinkedIn, I, I am very open about authenticity, leadership, marketing, but also gender issues when they're relevant and my own story. So you know, give a quite rounded view of life on, on LinkedIn. I'm not someone that kind of has high bias towards just talking about things that are professional, talking about things on one particular topic. So it, it is my hangout space for social media. I've kind of not deleted but I've, I've stopped using the other platform so linkedin is my preferred hangout space for sure and it's definitely the best place that people can get in contact with me or or follow me or or, or create connection fabulous fabulous i know i know i follow you and i'm sure you follow me and i see a lot of what you're posting and i probably th- I probably remember those early posts when you first were open about yourself, first started talking about it. So, yeah, it's been an honour to uh, not only speak to you today, but also follow, and I hate this word journey. Journey is such a crass word for me sometimes, but follow your 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 life and how you've evolved yourself. And it's been an amazing privilege. Yeah, I think it's just picking up the point of journey. I mean, people overuse the word journey, but journey for everything. But I love the phrase journey because I think we're all on a journey, no matter what it is. We're all on a yeah. journey of some form, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, I, yeah. I just find it links in with unprecedented. You know, unprecedented and journey is kind of like when when are things going to become precedented again? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's definitely an overused term, but yeah, it's the meanderings of life. Either way. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you, Lee. And thank you to you, the listener who's uh, who's tuned in, who's stayed with us to the end. And I really appreciate your time. Hopefully, I'm sure you have got something out today. There's so much there to take inspiration from. And if you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe to follow this podcast on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you consume your podcasts search for inclusion bites as b-i-t-e-s share the love tell your colleagues tell your friends reshare this when it's on linkedin or other platforms i've got a number of other exciting guests lined up 
I'm sure you'd be equally inspired of. And I've had a whole 95 others. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, then please do look at, listen to the back issues. And of course, I'd love you to be a guest as well if you have something to say. So email me, joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Let me know. Talk to me. How can we improve? And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.